0: I would even argue supernatural, that happens when the body of Christ gathers together for worship. You see, if each believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there's a concentration of the Holy Spirit in this place when we gather together. And if God inhabits the praise of His people, when we begin to sing and praise Him, God draws near. And the promise of God's Word that He's in the midst of us when there's two or three that are gathered together I would say to you that this place becomes a sacred space when the church is in it. Take the people out of the room, and this is just another building made out of wood and stone. But fill it up with the people of God, and this place becomes the sanctuary of God. And I can feel his presence this morning. I'm so blessed to be able to worship with you today. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 is the text I would like for us to take this morning. My only job as a pastor is not to stand up and be eloquent and to say something that's catchy. My only job is to explain to you what God said. That's all that I know to do. I believe that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I just want to read to you John eight thirty-one and 32, a statement that Jesus made about discipleship. And I want to spend the time that we have together explaining what Jesus meant by that. In John eight thirty one, it says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, we come into your presence, settling ourselves down, asking your Holy Spirit to just flush everything out of our mind's eye and to focus our attention upon you this day. Father, I pray that as we come to this book that we would not see it as a, as a dusty old piece of archaeology, but that we might see it as the very living Word of God that breathes life into us. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to explain your word today in a way that impacts our lives and redirects our course. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this year we're talking about our worldview. We are constructing a worldview. That is the lens through which we see the world. You know when you go to the eye doctor, they've got that apparatus that they slide over in front of your face and they start flipping lenses down and ask you to read and say is this clear? Is that more clear? Is that one less clear? Man, you know one of them it's blurry and then all of a sudden it it, it pops into focus and you're like, "Yes, that is it." Well, that is the lens that the doctor prescribes for you to see through because that reflects reality, right? That letter is not supposed to be blurry or fuzzy. That letter is not supposed to be really small. That letter is not supposed to be double vision. It is supposed to be clear, accurate, and be able to be visible. And so you match up the lens so that you can see that. Well, that's what we are trying to do this year in building our worldview from God's Word. It is to get the lens in front of our spiritual eyes so that we can see the world clearly and sharply as it really is in the view of God. Well, as we have been learning about worldview, our worldview is made up of what we believe, how we view certain things in life, and and some of those are just pillar core beliefs For instance, what do we believe about God? Is there a God? Is there only one God? Is it the God of the Bible? All of that is one of those pillar beliefs. What do we believe about salvation? Is it needed? Is there only one way? And so some of these beliefs that we have are core pillar beliefs that have to be in every worldview. But then there are connected beliefs that are attached to those. So, for instance we said that we believe that salvation is central to a worldview. We believe that Jesus Christ came on a mission to save the world because the world needed to be saved. That is one of our core beliefs. But connected to that, we saw last week, was the belief in evangelism. That if we truly believe that salvation comes only through belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it necessitates that we go out and evangelize, that we tell other people. uh, Because we would be cruelly negligent if we didn't do that. And so uh, evangelism is a connected uh, belief to salvation. Today is another one of those connected beliefs. It may not be one that you say, this is a pillar core belief of my worldview, but because I believe in God, because I believe in salvation, because I believe in the lostness of mankind, I also believe in this thing called discipleship. And so just consider the precedent that Jesus set for this thing called discipleship. In his great commission in Matthew chapter 28, before he left planet earth, he gave his disciples instructions and he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things. Whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. You see, Jesus' command was not just to evangelize, but also to disciple. He didn't just say, Go into all the world and tell them how to be saved. He said, After they get saved, you need to teach them everything that I taught you. Now, let's think about this for a moment. The word disciple is used 273 times in the Bible, 273 times in the New Testament. It is the primary label for a follower of Christ. Our primary label that we use nowadays is Christian. Does anybody know how many times the word Christian is used in the Bible? Three times. Three times the word Christian is used in Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with the word Christian. I'm not going to tell you today that we shouldn't call ourselves Christians. I'm just pointing out the contrast, that we need to contrast that and say, okay, the Bible only calls us Christians three times. It calls us disciples, followers of Christ, 273 times. That means I better know what it means to be a disciple. I ought to know what discipleship is and what it isn't, ought to know what this thing is. I'm afraid that discipleship is one of those words that sometimes we, we throw around and we use, but we don't actually know what it means to live it out. And so today, I want us to talk about discipleship. What is this thing, discipleship? If that's the main label, if that's the primary, if that's the primary term that's used for Christ followers in the Bible, and if it's the primary task... Of Christ followers in the Bible, shouldn't you and I know exactly what it means? You see, I'm an exact sort of person. I don't always get things exact when I'm building something. I want to. I want to use every little mark on the tape measure. Right now, I may not always know what they are. I'll say it's like the second little mark after that last little mark. Right, but I, I know that the 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 more little marks I can use, the more exact. I am with it. Well, that's one thing in building, but I'll tell you this. I I want to know exactly what God says in His Word, and I want to know exactly what He means and what I'm supposed to do as a believer. And so I want to understand what these terms are, what they mean. The word disciple is translated from a Greek noun that's called mathetes, And that word literally means a learner or a pupil, a learner or a pupil, mathetes. In Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he takes a word that is used 273 times as a noun, and he uses it as a verb. "Go Go ye therefore and disciple all nations. And so a disciple is not just what we are Discipling is what we are supposed to do. It's a noun and a verb. Isn't that interesting? I never thought I'd use English growing up in West Virginia, but it turns out it does come in handy. And so this is the word that Jesus uses in John eight thirty one when he speaks to those Jews that believed in on him. He says, if you continue my word, then are you my disciples in deed, in truth, in reality. And so Jesus is talking to them about discipleship. I want to just walk through these verses this morning and give you three principles, three essential principles about discipleship. What is it? I want to know what it is exactly as Jesus described it. Number one, discipleship begins in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Discipleship begins in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you notice the verse? Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews... Which believed on him. Jesus is speaking to a mixed multitude. He is speaking to a crowd of believers and unbelievers. He's speaking to a crowd of secular people and religious people. He's speaking to a crowd of leadership elite and of common folks. And as he is preaching to them, some of those people in the crowd who were unbelievers believe in Jesus, and then he begins to address them directly. But the very first principle that I see here is that discipleship begins in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Being religious did not make them disciples. If you look at that text, you'll find that there are some extremely religious people here. I mean, the religious elite of Israel are in this place as Jesus is speaking. But being religious does not make you a discipleship. That's one of those modern fallacies that we really need to dispel for us because, unfortunately, over the last 2,000 years, we got really good at doing programs in the church. Right? And we saw what they were doing in the Bible and said, you know what, we can make a program for that. And if we can have people do step one, two, and three, well, then we can run them through our program. And man, we've streamlined this thing. Well, in the process of time, and most mainline denominations, they streamlined this process, they thought of discipleship, with this thing called catechism. Have you ever heard of catechism? It's common in most mainline Protestant denominations, everything from Catholic to Presbyterian to Lutheran to Episcopal. And what happened with the catechism was the catechism was supposed to teach the orthodox doctrine of the church. And so it was supposed to take a young Christian through all the fundamentals of the faith in this series of lessons so that when they get to the end, they graduate and they know everything that a Christian is supposed to know. Well, if you've followed the history of mainline Protestantism, you will find that those are the denominations that have went into theological liberalism first. They are the ones that have abandoned their orthodox beliefs. You say, how is that possible if they had this process called catechism that was to make disciples out of all their young members? And I'll tell you what happened, and it may have happened to some of you if you were raised in that church. You got enrolled in catechism at a certain age, and you went through catechism class, and when you graduated, having memorized what you were supposed to memorize, they confirmed you or baptized you into the membership of the church. And unfortunately, they skipped the very first step, which is making sure it begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they simply just did a doctrinal download into the young hearts and minds of these kids. And by the time they got through catechism, they knew a lot of Bible stuff, but they didn't know Jesus. And then they populated the church with unsaved church members so that they didn't know what the importance was of salvation through Christ alone. Now, that's a broad description, and there's a lot of details that could be uncovered in there. But what I want to point out to you today is that being religious does not make you a discipleship. It doesn't matter if you've been through catechism. It doesn't matter how much time you've spent in church. It doesn't matter if you can recite many Bible stories if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. Hey, here's another fact from the text. Being hearers did not make them disciples. You see, because Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and while some of them believe and Jesus begins speaking to them, there are others who heard the exact same message and did not believe. Hey, let me ask you something. Is it possible? That two people can sit in the same church service and one of them believes in Jesus Christ and the other one doesn't believe in Jesus Christ? Is it possible that two people can sit beside of each other in the same church service and hear the exact same message and not both respond with the same faith? Is it possible that two people can sit beside each other looking in the same Bible during the church service and one of them still not be saved? Yes, absolutely possible. Because being a hearer does not make you a disciple So again, it doesn't matter how much time you've logged in church, how many sermons that you have heard. If you don't start with a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are not a disciple. Jesus said to those who believed on him, you know the wonderful thing about salvation is that salvation is complete the very moment that you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus did all the heavy lifting on the cross. He finished the entire work of salvation when He died on the cross. He literally, John nineteen thirty, bowed his head, gave the ghost, and said, "It is finished." To tell us, "I it is paid in full. It is complete. It is done. All the work of salvation is done. Past tense. And when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ that gets transferred to our account." Salvation is finished at the moment you and I put our faith and trust in Christ. But discipleship is just beginning. Discipleship is not salvation. Discipleship is what follows salvation. It is what Jesus described in Matthew 28 when he said, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them, and then teach them to observe everything I commanded you. That's the discipleship part. And so it starts with believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean to believe in him? I've met some people and I say, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, I've always believed in Jesus. What what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, we have an interesting case study in our text. If we back up to verse 21, we get to hear the message that Jesus is preaching when these people come to faith in Christ. John eight twenty one says this, Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whether I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, You are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Let's press the pause button for just a moment. What is Jesus doing? He's identifying himself. He is identifying his true identity. I'm not a mere mortal man. I am not of this earth. I am from above. If you don't know who I am, you won't go where I'm going. Notice he is identifying himself. Verse 25, then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. So Jesus' message from the very beginning of his ministry was identifying who he is, his true identity. Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said, <coughs> then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Watch this, verse 30. And as he spake these words, those words we just read, Many believed on him. What is it to believe in Jesus Christ? If everything about discipleship is writing on my relationship with Jesus Christ and my relationship with Jesus Christ is writing on what I believe, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to believe who he is, who he truly is, and what he has done. He says, you have to know who I am, that I am not from this earth, that I am from heaven. And then he mentions the cross. This is before the cross, but he points toward the cross when he says, if I be lifted up, then shall men know that I am he. And so to believe in Jesus Christ, to begin that relationship for discipleship, means that I believe in who he is, his true identity. And I believe in what he did for me on the cross he is the Lord, and He is the Savior. He's the Lord from heaven above. If I'm going to truly believe who Jesus is, I have to believe that He is the Lord. And that means that He has all power in heaven and earth. But I also must believe that He is the Savior. That as Lord, He yielded His rights, and He laid down His life for me on the cross And he paid the debt in full and he took it again when he rose again from the grave. I must believe that he is Lord and Savior. I must believe that he's God and Redeemer. I must put my faith in him and in him alone. That's where it all begins. It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. But then Jesus goes on to give us this second principle. Number two, discipleship is relative to the word of God. Discipleship is relative to the word of God. Back to our text, just saying what God said. In John eight thirty one, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue my word, then Are you my disciples indeed? So, so something happens after salvation that gets me from just being the believer to being a true disciple. What is it? It is my relationship to the Word of God, it is relative to the Word of God. Jesus states an axiom here. An axiom is a self-evident or self-proving statement. That is that it is self-evidentary. It proves itself. Jesus gives an axiom of discipleship. The statement on discipleship is self-proving. If you continue my word, then are you my disciple indeed. That's an axiom. If you're a disciple indeed, you will continue in my word. It's true going or coming, is it not? It proves itself forwards or backwards. It proves itself in the positive. If you continue my word, then you're my disciples indeed. It proves itself in the negative. If you don't continue in my word, then you are not my disciples indeed. It is an axiom of discipleship. It is a self-evident proof. I love that because it makes it clear to me. That if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I must be a student of his word. You see, this statement is both conditional and evidential. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's a condition of discipleship. If you continue my word, then you're my disciples indeed. What's the condition that Jesus puts upon discipleship? It is spending time in his word. It is learning his word and living his word. But get this it's also evidential. That is, it's evidence of my discipleship. Hey, how do I know that I'm a disciple? Because I spend time in His Word. You see, not only is it the condition of discipleship, it is also the evidence of discipleship. Discipleship in the first century is interesting. You see, in That day and time and in that area, they didn't have the same educational system that you and I have, primary school, middle school, high school, higher education, so forth and so on. Uh, They had a very rudimentary education. And then if they were going to go into what we would call higher education, career training, They would have to find a master and then they would become his disciple or her disciple and they would study and they would live with them and they would work with them and they would be trained by them in exchange for their free labor so that after so many years, they are well uh, taught in the craft that they're wanting to learn. And so if you wanted to be a carpenter in the first century in Israel, then you would find a master carpenter. You would go to a town where there is a master carpenter, a carpenter of renown, and you would approach him and say, can I be your disciple? Can I be your apprentice? And you would sign on to work with that guy and to live with that guy and to eat with that guy and to to do the work that that guy wants you to do until you learned how to do his craft. Now, if you were blessed to be born into a family that had a master craftsman in it, then it was a pretty set path, but if you weren't, then you had to go seek your own. The same was true when it came to schools of philosophy or rabbinic schools. The difference, though, The difference between that and Jesus' discipleship was in all of those scenarios, the student approached the master and applied, if you will. Can I be your disciple? Can I be your apprentice? And that master would make the decision. In our case, Jesus is the one who went and called his disciples. And that is just him communicating the truth of Christianity, that Christianity is not man working his way to God's approval. It is God coming to man And so Jesus calls his disciples, and you remember what his call is? It's expressed in a couple of different ways. One of the calls is to follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's a training process there. But the Bible also says that he called 12 disciples to be with him, to be with him. Do you understand? That's what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. When he says in John eight thirty one, If you continue my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Remember how I said that, that over the last 2,000 years, we've got really good at programs. And sometimes in programs, we skip the fundamental truth of what we were trying to accomplish. I think we've gotten very programmatic about Bible reading. We have our Bible reading calendars. I, I, I print them out, I buy them, I, I send them out for the church because I do think it's a helpful tool if it keeps me on track on reading my Bible. But we've taken this parochial, institutional, academic approach to reading the Bible like it's homework. Here's your assigned reading for the week. You read one chapter of the Bible a day. Read three chapters of the Bible a day if you want to read through the Bible in a year, and then you can check that off your list. And sadly, that's how we approach the Bible, like it's some sort of homework, reading, textbook that we're coming to, when in fact, reading the Bible was not simply about logging the chapters in. It was about walking with Jesus. It was about spending time with the Master. It was about sitting at His feet, hearing His voice, learning. His craft and his trade. That's what he means when he says, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. I was reflecting this week on the early days of my salvation. I got saved when I was 21 years old, and I was living in West Virginia, and I'm just always in awe of how loving and kind God is to sinners. I was a rebel. I had heard the gospel. I had been in church as a kid. I walked away from it, wasn't interested, didn't want it, turned my back on God, didn't need Him in my life. And yet, when I look back at how I became a Christian, I find out that God had not turned His back on me, but He he kept planting people in my life that were used to bring me to faith in Christ, that were used to direct my life. And one of those people is my pastor, Rick Setzer, the first time I met Rick Setzer, I was working at Lowe's. I was 21 years old, and I worked at this this little station called the Project Desk. I don't, I don't know if they still have that or not, but, but when I was working there, that's where the weekend warriors who wanted to build a deck or a fence or something like that would come. And we had this little computer program. We could plug in all the dimensions and tell them what they needed. You know, you need 26 2 You need, uh, you know, uh, 52 joist hangers. we just do everything like that. And so it wasn't my favorite thing to do, especially if somebody had a lot of questions, you know, because there were a lot of people who just really didn 't know any they shouldn't be building basically, but we had this service that we could make them think that they could do it and uh, and so I wasn't always keen on waiting on people. Well, this morning uh, I'm at work, and this uh, this conservative looking fellow with a side part walks in and khaki pants and a and a and a and a, and a button up shirt and he starts asking me questions, and I thought, "Oh man, this is one of those guys," and, and so I got stuck with him, and and so I'm trying to make the most of it. And I ended up spending about an hour with him, figuring up the roof for the back porch of his house, and uh, and by the time we got done, I found out he's a pretty good guy. We made some jokes, had some fun, and we got got done. He pulled this little pamphlet out of his pocket and he put it on the desk, and he said, "Hey, partner, I'm I'm the pastor down here at Kegley." Baptist Church, and I'd like to invite you to be my guest tomorrow, and uh, you know, in the sovereignty of God, God had prearranged it to where I wasn't working that next day, which was Sunday. That was rare. I volunteered to work Sundays because I didn't go to church, and other people did, but I just happened to be off that next day, and since this guy was my new friend, I felt obligated to say yes, And because my mom raised me that if you give somebody your words, you don't go back on it. When I told him yes, I was guaranteeing I would go to church that next day. And so I got up that next morning and I went to his church. And I can tell you, I still remember what he taught that day. I still remember it to this day. It was the first time in my life that somebody actually opened up the Bible and explained it in a way that made sense to me. Well, I didn't get saved that day. I was still living my life. But God had planted another one of those sneaky Christians in my life that worked right there at Lowe's with me. And him and I became friends, and he invited me to this youth thing. And I went reluctantly because he was my friend. And uh, I needed to find better friends, I think. But I went and uh, I heard the gospel and I got saved. I mean, I really got saved. I recognized who Jesus truly is, that he is the Lord and that he died to save me. And I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to save me. And in making that decision, that was a big decision for me. I wasn't just going to say a prayer and keep on living my life for myself. I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. And I thought, man, that that, that one preacher that I met seemed to know something about the Bible. And so I, I went back home. I found that pamphlet that he had given me the very first time I met him. I still had it, but it didn't have his number on there. It had the church number. I tried calling that, and nobody answered the church number. It was like a Saturday or something. And so I looked at his name, and I went back, kids, there was something in my day called a phone book. This is back when phones had cords on them, and they were attached to the wall. And you actually had to get this paper document out, and you had to know the alphabet, and you had to be able to read to find somebody's name, and and y'all remember that? And so I went through that thing until I found Rick Setzer, and I took a chance because there was always three people in the county with the same number, You didn't know who it was. And so I called him up. And uh, it was the preacher. I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Justin from Lowe's. I came to your church a while back. I said, I got saved and I've got a lot of questions. Can I come talk to you? And of course he said, yeah, sure, come on. And so we set an appointment. I started going to his office at the church and I would ask him, I had questions about everything. I mean, I wanted to know about creation and dinosaurs and, and, and denominations. and I mean, just all this stuff I, I wanted to know. And, and we would sit down across from, his desk, and he would, I'd ask him a question, and he'd open up the Bible or quote a Bible verse, say, well, the Bible says, and then he'd explain it to me, and I'd say, well, that makes sense, and we did that enough times where I thought, well, this Baptist, I don't know about all the Baptist churches, but this one in Kegley seems to be trying to do what the Bible says, and so I got baptized and became a member of that church, and as a pastor, he was exactly what I needed and wanted, I mean, he was logical, and he explained the Bible. But do you know where the greatest impact was made on my life? It was in his home. You see, because I was a, I was a 21-year-old single dude... And I just decided I'm going to hang around church until I get an invitation to come to his house because I, I want to see some more about this stuff. And it happened, and he invited me to his house, and I never left. I, I would always go back to his, and I took it as a standing invitation. And so I would go to his house after church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I look back on that as a pastor, and I think, dear God, what did I do to that man? But you know, it was there in his home where I got to see what a Christian husband is. It wasn't just reading it in the Bible. It was seeing him live it out. What a, what a Christian home looked like. What a loving husband and wife. You know, my dad left when I was seven years old. My, my dad uh, checked out and, and left. I didn't have that example in, in my life. Nearly every home I knew of was a broken home. I'd never seen anything like that. And literally, those, those first six months, that first year, I was discipled by Rick Setzer through the Word of God and through life-on-life discipleship, and it set the trajectory for the rest of my life. I'm here today because of that discipleship. And so I'm telling you, discipleship is relative to the Word of God, but it's not just an information download. You see... The beauty of the Word of God is that that's where you get to know Jesus. That's where you get to walk with Him. You see, the disciples in Jesus' day got to go spend the night with Him. They got to travel with Him. They got to listen to Him teach. They got to assist Him in the ministries that He was doing. You and I don't have that same opportunity. And so they wrote it down for us so that we can get into God's Word and we can spend time with Him. Uh, That Word that Jesus used there, He says, if you continue in My Word, that idea of continuing means to abide, to dwell, to make it your home. It is ground zero. It is the place that you launch out from. It is the place you always return to. I told them in the morning service at 830 that the Bible is the realest reality that I know of. It's the realest reality. Reality that I know of. You see, if you watch the news, they're going to paint a picture of reality. If you signed up for a philosophy class, it's going to paint a picture of reality. But not all interpretations of reality are real. And the realest reality that I know is in here. Because this is divine truth from the creator of the universe, recorded for you and i Third principle, discipleship is a realignment of your worldview with the truth. Discipleship is a realignment of your worldview with the truth. You say, out of all the things that you could teach on or talk about with worldview, why discipleship, Justin? I mean, we got salvation. We got evangelism. I mean, isn't this just like extra? Why why discipleship? Because discipleship is full circle. When I understand what discipleship is, it's not just part of the process. It is what actually realigns my worldview to the truth of God. Notice our text, we are still in one continuous statement. Jesus begins speaking in verse 31, and it is one statement, one sentence until the end of verse 32. Then said Jesus unto those Jews that believed on him, If you continue my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free free. That's included in Jesus' statement on discipleship. You know, Pilate one time asked a question that many have asked since. When Jesus was standing before him being on trial, he said, What is truth? What is truth? And in that exchange between Jesus and Pilate, Jesus said this, he said, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate says, What is truth? And Jesus says, I am truth. And I came to the earth for this very purpose, to bear witness or to testify of the truth. And by the way, everyone, everyone that is of the truth, that recognizes truth, will hear my voice. Truth is defined as the actual state of matter. The actual state of matter or conformity with fact or reality. When I think about what is truth, truth is what is really real. And isn't that the stated goal of a worldview to reflect reality as it really is? I don't want to see double vision. I don't want to see blurry vision. I want to see crisp, clear vision of what the world is, how it operates, who God is, what my responsibility is to God, what my responsibility is to the world around me, how do I deal with the things that I face in life. All of that comes through the filter of my worldview. And while every worldview may make this claim, not every worldview can make this claim truthfully. You understand that if there's a worldview that contradicts the biblical worldview, they cannot both be correct. So only one of them is making a truthful claim. The Christian worldview, according to Christ, is the only one that can offer you and I the true worldview, the truth of what the world is. One of the great benefits of a discipleship relationship with Christ and His Word is the realignment of your worldview with the truth. I, you and I have the benefit of living in this modern age, and so there's some things that we're familiar with. And that, that word alignment or realignment, that's one of the words that we are familiar with. We were driving yesterday, me and my family, and we were heading up to West Virginia. And at one point in the drive, one of my kids uh, shouts out lovingly from the back, Whoa, Dad, take it easy on Mom's car. And I said, Son, what we just experienced is crossing from Virginia into West Virginia. (laughs) The road quality is not the same. And one of the things I learned early on in West Virginia was that part of your maintenance on your vehicle was alignment. You see, because those old potholes and rough roads take a beating on the suspension of your car, and your car can get out of alignment. And so they devise this machine where they bring your car in and they can measure the wheels and they can set the cast and the camber and they set the toe in and the toe out and they can get it to where they're all tracking in line so that your tires wear evenly and it doesn't pull to the right or the left. That is alignment. Actually, it's realignment to its factory setting. You know, that's an appropriate illustration because as you and I go through life, we're on the road full of potholes of sin and false information, and it's beating against the alignment of your worldview. And we need to bring this thing in for realignment to the truth. We need it set by God's standard. Jesus makes some interesting statements here, and we're wrapping it up. If you'll hang with me just a couple more minutes. Jesus said, and you shall know the truth. Here's a fact for you. Truth is knowable. Truth is knowable. That's an archaic idea. We now live in the postmodern age, and in postmodernism, it, they say one of its basic tenets truth is not knowable. You can't know the truth. You cannot say that there is one set truth for everybody. What's true for you may not be true for me. What's true in that culture may not be true in this culture. But Jesus said, truth is knowable. And I would just point out to you, there's some things in the world that are absolute truth. Math is absolute truth. It is not open to interpretation. Those numbers add up or they don't add up. And if you don't believe that truth, that math is absolute truth, just get audited by the IRS. Even the federal government believes in the absolute truth of number. Well, when it's applying to its citizens. It's another message. By the way, here's a shameless plug. I'm going to preach a three-week series on my view of government leading up to the election. I can't wait. I can't wait. Truth is knowable. What other truth is known but How about laws of logic? Any of you all ever take a logic class, a rhetoric class? There are literal laws of logic. Uh, this cannot be that. It cannot be both this and that. There's laws of non-contradiction and laws of identification. Those are unbending, unbreakable. You, there's no loopholes within those. Those are absolutes. How about natural laws like gravity, magnetic north, thermodynamics? All of those things are set and they are unchanging in the universe you can set your clock or your compass by them truth is knowable the truth of God is knowable here's another fact truth is eternal Truth is eternal. It is eternally said. It is not changing with the age or with the generation. One of the things that we're running into today is they're saying, well, that may have been true back then, but it's not true today. We have advanced. We have gained in knowledge. We we know better now. And that's why you get liberal theologians trying to tell you, well, the Bible doesn't mean what it meant when Paul wrote it, because we know better than he did then. We have new truth now. No Truth is eternal. Did you notice that Jesus said the truth twice in that verse? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Not a truth, not some truth, not your truth, not my truth. Definite article, the truth. In fact, when he later has a conflict in verse 44, he says that the devil is not of the truth. There is one eternal fixed standard of truth. God is truth, the Bible says. Jesus is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. The Word of God is truth. Truth is eternal. In fact, the truth frees you from a false worldview. The truth frees you from a false worldview. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The unbelievers in the audience took offense at that strong statement. They said, what do you mean it'll make us free? We've never been in bondage to anybody. To which Jesus replies in verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Jesus went on to explain that everyone has been enslaved by sin and that enslavement to sin distorts our worldview. And that is why it is not just truth facts, that are needed to set us free, but the truth of the Son of God that is needed. If the Son shall make you free, then shall you be free indeed. Jesus uses a little word twice, at the end of verse 31 and at the end of verse 36. It is the little word indeed. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. If the Son shall make you free, then you shall be free indeed. Indeed, that little word indeed means reality, in reality. Isn't that what we're aiming for? Don't we want reality? Isn't that what our worldview is supposed to do, is give us reality as it really, truly is? And so I say to you that discipleship gives us the greatest grip on reality that we could ever hope to have in life. You say, I want to have a right worldview. I want to see the world as it really is. I want to be able to interpret all the headlines, all the media information, everything that comes at me in life. I want to be able to interpret it as it really is and put it in the right category where it's supposed to go so that I know how to respond and how I know how to move forward. My friend, I'm telling you, the process of discipleship will give you the greatest grip on reality that you and I can achieve in life. It doesn't come through PhDs or THDs. It comes through discipleship. And so I have a question for you. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple indeed? Let's pray. So we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I believe that one of the hardest things to do in the world is to change a person's mind. But that's exactly what discipleship does. Changes our mind. But not sways us to simply a variant opinion, but it attempts to change our mind to the truth. I want the truth. I want the truth. Don't you want the truth? And I want to see the world as it truly is discipleship is the path. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the way that you send people into the world to witness that told us about you. Lord, I thank you for Pastor Rick and for all the others who have invested and discipled people along the way. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to be disciples and to make disciples. I pray, Lord, that we would live up to the label that you gave us 273 times in Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would seek to be disciples, and I pray, Lord, that we would also invest our lives in making disciples of others. Truly, in our age, we don't just need saved people. We need discipled people. If our world has any hope of being righted, it will come through discipleship. God, help us. God, help us to be faithful in this hour, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.